don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to turn to the book of Acts. We've been journeying through this incredible narrative account all this year. And in fact, today marks the end of that series. We've got a few things planned the next week and wanting to really focus our hearts upon the message of Christmas. Always a wonderful time to reflect, to proclaim the reality of Christ as he stepped into human flesh. But the mission this morning is we have two remaining chapters. So we definitely need to pray. Chapters 27 and 28. And we're going to do a bit of a survey through and try and hopefully wrap some things up and pick out some themes that the Lord has placed upon my heart for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive. It's active, your word as it goes forth. It always accomplishes all that you send it forth to do. It never falls short. It never falters. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would go forth in power this morning, and we pray that it would find receptive soils in our hearts. Give us listening ears to hear what it is that your spirit is saying to each and every one of us this morning. For the glory of your name, King Jesus, how we need you, how we long for you, how we desire to behold you, that we might become more like you. We pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. So turn with me to Acts chapter 27. For those who've been following along, you'll know that the previous few chapters have recounted Paul's trials. He gives defense in various places and before various people. And if we take a step back even further than that, we'll remember that even before he was in prison, the Lord had spoken to him and said, you will give witness in Rome. So he's begun, if you like, this slow journey towards Rome. The Lord had given him a word and a promise, and yet he's found himself so far up to now for some years in the midst of a prison. Ever feel a little bit like that? The Lord gives you a word. You think, fantastic, here we go. He's got the travel guides out. We're heading to Rome. Where are we going? And then all of a sudden, you go from the promise to a prison, to a place of challenge and difficulty. Kind of seems to be this pattern in Scripture, doesn't it? He gives Abraham a promise, and it takes some decades to see the fulfillment. We could say the same with Joseph, with the anointing of King David, who was anointed as a young man, but it was some years that transpired before he ever saw the fulfillment of the word that the Lord had spoken. There's a message there. What do we do in the midst of the waiting? What do we do in the midst of these seasons where the Lord has spoken and yet there's no obvious evidence of the reality of that being at work? The point is simply this, isn't it? The Lord takes us so often on a journey. We think we're going straight there, but in the kingdom, often there's detours along the way. And what we're going to see here is some further detours. He's been in prison, but finally at the end of chapter 26, we see that he appeals. He was, of course, a Roman citizen to the emperor of Rome and thus begins the next stage of his journey towards Rome as he heads off on a sailing adventure and journey. Let's pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 9. It says... So, so far the journey has begun, he's there with a whole bunch of prisoners under 
the control, if you like, of the Roman guard. It says, since much time had passed, this is verse 9, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. It's an interesting detail there, given what next unfolds. But the centurion, verse 11, paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So the journey's begun. So far, it's been smooth sailing. But Paul, it says, he warns them of what is to come. Now, there's some conjecture there about, is he warning them because he's been on sailing journeys before? Perhaps he's more experienced. In other words, it's just a a natural intuition that he has that it's the wrong time in terms of the winds, etc., that there's perils ahead. Or is he warning them because there's a specific unction of the Spirit? It's not clear in the nuances of the text which one it is or if it is a little bit of both. But certainly he's convinced that there is troubles and trials ahead. He says this is what's going to happen. The ship will be lost and lives will be lost as a result. He says we must wait here and go no further. Now isn't that interesting? I find that fascinating for a few reasons. Number one... Even though Paul had this word from the Lord, the Lord had spoken very clearly, and in fact, in a moment, we'll see that the Lord will underline and reinforce this word. He said, Paul, you will go to Rome, and you will give witness in that place for the glory of my name. He, he knew where the Lord was taking him, but even here, some years down the track, he doesn't suggest pressing ahead. He doesn't say, well, we've got to go. The Lord has spoken, and I've got to somehow bring about the word of the Lord that he's given to me. You see, Paul was not always pushing forward foolishly, trying to rush the purposes and the promises of God. And I wonder this, how often do we in our journey with the Lord grab a hold of the promise, but actually either hinder or it sometimes abort the purposes of, the God, of God because foolishly, We press ahead. There's no sense of balancing the word of the Lord with the timing of the Lord. What is it that the Lord is saying at this moment? For Paul, he's heading there. He knows where he's going. He knows God is with him. And yet he calls upon those around him and says, we've got to stop. We've got to wait. This is a moment of waiting. It's not always just about knowing the word of the Lord. It's about knowing the timing and the seasons and the moments of the Lord as well. So Paul warns them. And of course, we read the account. It says nobody listens. They ignore what it is that um, he has to say. In fact, they do the very opposite thing. They head off foolishly into the midst of weather that is indeed adverse. And they find themselves in the midst of a life-threatening situation. The storms come. They beat against the boat. And two weeks in, let's pick up the story, uh, verse 19 and 20, we're we're here now in the midst of this two-week period, tossed at sea, the wind and waves around. It says, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon them. I love this 
descriptive language. No small tempest is a big storm. It says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Do you get the sense that they're in a bit of a bad way here? They're struggling with the circumstances around. All hope has been abandoned. Verse 21, since they've been without food for a long time, so they've given up all hope. They're not even eating anymore. It says in 21, since they've been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. Guys, I was telling you this from the beginning. This was always going to happen. We should never have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart. Here's Paul in the midst of this circumstance. Paul, the prisoner, standing up and encouraging those around him. He says, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. What a wonderful description that is. To whom I belong and I worship. I belong to him. How could any harm happen to me? He's he's in charge of my life, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, catch this phrase here. It says, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. It's not going to be all smooth sailing. There's going to be some more hiccups along the way. So we see playing out exactly what Paul had told them, whether it was just by natural intuition, I see some storms arriving, or perhaps specifically the Lord had said, do not go, this is a disastrous trip that awaits you. And yet in the midst of these foolish situations, the foolish actions of the men around him, there's two realities that are worth us pondering. Number one is simply this, it's the mercy of God. It says, God has granted, God has granted the lives that are on this ship. Although the ship will be lost, God will preserve, He will spare the people despite their foolish choices. God, in His mercy, did not hold them accountable for their bad decisions. Aren't you glad that we worship and serve a God who doesn't always hold us accountable For the foolish mistakes that we make. Praise God for His mercy. Praise God for His grace. God has granted the lives of those around Him. And yet, it also says this. So first of all, it's the mercy of God. Secondly, this speaks to me of the heart of Paul. It says, God has granted you. Now, it's not particularly clear in the ESV, but if you look at some other translations, it phrases it this way. God has granted your requests. God has answered your prayer because certainly the connection there in the Greek is not just God has granted you in a general sense, but God has specifically answered your prayers. You see, it's an insight into the life of Paul here. Here's here's Paul who knew this trip was bound for disaster. He knew. He said, this is happening. And then exactly what he suspects or was specifically told by the Lord unfolds and yet even there is he's thinking guys I told you not to do this even as he's impacted and affected by the poor choices of people around him where is it that we find him in the midst of this scenario 
Is he sitting there fatalistically saying, well, it is what it is. I told these guys. So is, is he there accusing and condemning? This is on your heads. See, I think there's a very different picture of Paul. And I want us to grab a hold of this in the midst there. This is what seems clear in the midst of that passage. Here is Paul. Despite their foolish choices, despite the fact that they did exactly what he told them not to do, he's on his knees crying out. Probably not even for his own life. I believe he had utter confidence that God would somehow preserve him through. But crying out for the lives of men. Those people around him. And these weren't necessarily good people. He's there on a boat of prisoners. And his captors, the Roman centurions. And yet, there he is, crying out, Lord, preserve these people. See, he said at the beginning, he said, this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the ship's going to be lost. Lives will be lost. And then here he says, God said to me, he's granted my request. What was his request? I believe we can easily imply that he was there saying, God, would you preserve the people around me? Would you preserve them? Lord, just keep them alive. They don't know you yet. Would you, would you please preserve their lives? Give them one more chance. Give them another opportunity to believe and receive the grace that only you can offer. See, we too are affected by the poor choices at times of people around us. In fact, this is one year, if I'm perfectly honest, I feel more affected by some of the choices that I don't particularly agree with around us than any other I can think of. Even this past week, and I'm just being blatantly honest, in the Northern Territory, laws that were passed to allow full-term abortion. Full-term in our own country. Some of the issues that have surrounded us in terms of banning a biblical worldview on morality and sexuality. We continue to find new ways and means to write into the very fabric of our society, turning away from our foundations and writing into our laws every manner of ungodliness. We, we are. And I'd love to say that I look at things around us and it's, it's all rosy. It's wonderful. I honestly, before the Lord, can't say that. What I can say as your pastor is, I see storms ahead. I see if we continue this path, there's going to be shipwrecks. There's going to be danger. There's going to be all sorts of potentially disasters outside the hand of the Lord, which he can still sovereignly move. But my question is this, well, what is our response? Do we err on the side of fatalism? Well, you know, it is what it is. It's just going to happen. Let's, you know, sit back and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Is there going to be fear? There's been so much of that this year, hasn't there? Well, let's just give in to the fear. Are we going to be stirred up and ready for a fight? Maybe the, the prayers of James and John have gone through our minds and our hearts this past year as we've seen things and as they saw the Samaritans who wouldn't believe in Jesus. They said, Jesus, can we just call down fire? Let's just get this over and done with. Just burn it. Burn them to the ground. Let's be honest. Some of us feel a little bit that way at times. Yes, some of us maybe. Or can we be a people who emphasize and uphold and live this life of faith? This life of faith. Lord, regardless of what happens, regardless of people's bad choices around us, Lord, save us. Save our country. Preserve us. Give us one more opportunity to repent and to turn around. And here's the encouragement for us. 
How many righteous men did it take on the boat to preserve and save the lives of everyone on that boat? How many? Just one. Now, there was probably others. Luke's writing the account. He was probably there. But the prayers of one man, God says, I will grant your request. How many righteous people does it take to change the course of a nation? Well, we've got so many examples through the scripture. Just one righteous, just a handful of people who would not err into fatalism, not fear, not stirring up for a fight, but faith, responding in faith. God preserve, God redeem, God resurrect, God while we have breath, we will partner to see your purposes unfold, not just for us, but the lives of those around us. See, I believe he grabbed a hold of this thing, didn't he? Saying, well, I'm here for a reason. And as much as it depends on me, not only am I going to preach and proclaim the gospel, but I'm going to love and pray for those around me. Let's move on. There's a sermon there, but there's more to go. We've got to get through this passage. I love love verse 26 there as well. He says in the end, he says, So take heart, for I have faith in God. Have faith in God. What was the source of Paul's strength as he persevered through trials? It wasn't his strength. It wasn't the strength of the boat, the ship, the sailors around him. It was his undeniable faith in God. And I've said this many times this year, but this is a moment in time where we need to secure the source of our faith. Where are we placing our faith? Because if it's anywhere else, then we're in for some troubled waters. It needs to be in Him. So, of course, we read the account, and as I said, we'll skip over some bits here, but exactly as Paul has said, the ship is lost, it runs aground on a reef, and uh, we'll pick up the story again at the end of chapter 27. It says, verse 43, so the the, uh, command is that everybody should swim to shore. It says that the soldiers is 42 soldiers plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape but the centurion wishing to save paul kept them from carrying out their plan he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship and so it was that they were all brought safely to land just as paul had prophesied just as the lord had proclaimed verse 28 after we were brought safely through we then learned that the island was called malta The native people showed an unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, so grab this heart of Paul. They've just rocked up on shore. What's he doing? He's off to grab sticks for the fire. He was always doing something. He was a man of great spiritual power, but great practicality, wasn't he? He's encouraging, he's feeding the guys, he's praying, and here he's collecting sticks. Collecting sticks, and it says... As he was doing that, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Verse 5, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. So here is Paul. They've just endured. We've skipped very briefly over this... uh, trying few weeks stuck out at sea the boats lost on the the reef they all swim to shore not a life is lost which is a miracle in and of itself and they arrive there in the midst of him then helping and collecting wood for the fire he gets bitten by a snake from storms to shipwrecks to snake bites 
What do you think he is thinking? I think if I was him, I'd be thinking, Lord, are you serious? Like, have you seen the journey we've just been on? Storms, shipwrecks, we've survived, and now to top it all off, just as he was out there, there's no result of anyone else's actions, he gets bitten by a snake bite. See, the first reality is sometimes we're impacted, as we've just talked about. Sometimes things happen as a result of the actions of those around us. Sometimes things just happen because they happen. There's no explanation given to us here, is there, about why on earth this snake bite happened. And yet I love Paul's response. It says, he just shook it off. He just shook the fire off, yeah, shook it off, and then went about his business. And I want, I want us to grab this heart of Paul too. You see, what you don't see in the midst of any of these scenes and scenarios, and I know we've briefly covered it, but you can look in more detail and you'll find out there's not one moment where you see him cowering away in self-pity in some deep, dark corner. He's called his friends in for a pity party. He's feeling sorry for himself. What you do see constantly and continually is it doesn't matter what's happening around him. He's always active, isn't he? He's always looking. Where's, where's someone I can pray for? Where's someone I can encourage? Where's some sticks I can gather together for a fire to keep the men warm? See, there's never this thing, I believe, for Paul to get hung up on the why. God, why is this all happening? Because the reality is there's not really a logical explanation, is there? If God wanted to take him to Rome, why two years in prison? Why a shipwreck and a storm? Why a snake bite in the midst of the fire? And yet he seems comfortable and content. And there's this recognition for him that if it's happening, God has a purpose in the midst of it. And here is the incredible reality as a believer. We can't always expect to see the full picture, certainly not at times, in the moment. In the moment, there was, there's no explanation given. There was no warning this time saying, Paul, just to warn you, you're going to be picking up sticks, viper's going to come out, and it's going to latch upon your hand. There's no logical certainty in the moment or full picture of what God outworks. We can't always expect to see the full picture in the moment, but we can always expect to see and to grab a hold of the purposes of God outworked in the midst of every circumstance that we faced. What was the purpose of the snake? Well, nothing seemingly in the moment, but if you read on, and again, we don't have time, you'll see that it was, it was this particular instance that then opens the door and he goes to heal uh, the leader of the town, uh, the father of the, the leader of the town, and then there's a great healing revival, and many people come and get... I mean, who would have thought the snake bite was the open door to the proclamation of the gospel? Things are not always logical in the way that we think of human logic. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So there's not always this expectation that we should have to see the full picture in the moment, but we should always have this expectation, as I believe we see so clearly in the life of Paul, that he's at work. I might not see it in the moment, but in the long-term picture, whether it's this side of eternity or the other, then all of a sudden there is a dawning and a reality and a realization of the God who had been at work. Both of things that happened to him 
but also of the product of other people's bad choices. Like there's nothing that's beyond God's capacity to work together for his good. So life is a voyage. There's winds, there's waves, there's angry seas, there's crises to overcome. But whether it's the mistakes of others, whether it's bad decisions, whether it's natural disasters, we can have courage. Both that just because it's not smooth sailing doesn't mean that the Lord's not in it. In fact, often that means that he is. But also that of whatever happens to us, that he is, as Romans 8 proclaims so well, working how many things together? Working all things. He's the God who works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What a privilege that is. What a foundation that provides for us as believers. What a perspective through storms, shipwrecks, snake bites, and whatever else it is we might find to know his providing and guiding hand at work when we see it and when we don't. One more verse and we'll bring this to a land. Jump over a conclusion to the end of Acts chapter 28. So we, we do see if you read on that we move from snake bites to another ship ride. This one is uneventful. He arrives at Rome. He begins to preach as he often does, calling together the Jewish people around him. He preaches and teaches. And let's just read together the last couple of verses from verse 30 of Acts chapter 28. It says this, he lived there being in Rome two whole years at his own expense. Now, that, that's an interesting phrase there. The most common interpretation is that it seems very likely that he was under house arrest, but living at his own expense means that he more than likely had a job. He wasn't just sitting still. He wasn't here at this particular point in his ministry saying, well, I need others to provide for me. I mean, this shows his character even here as he's under house arrest in Rome. He says, no, I will work to provide my own way is more than likely what's implied in that text. He lived there two years at his own expense, paying his own way, if you like, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Full stop. Amen. Someone say, hallelujah, we made it. Yeah. Woo, a whole year and we got there. Very quickly at the end. Felt a bit more like the plane, you know, anyway. We did, we made it through. So this is the ending, and in some ways it's a little bit of an odd ending. Odd for a few reasons, because we do know from church tradition, from inference in other passages, that this was not the end of the story for Paul, that we believe, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that he was actually released after this initial two years, that he did some more traveling, that he was eventually arrested and brought back for probably about another five-year period in Rome, where eventually he did lay down his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not the end of the story. I mean, the reason it ends here leads weight to the argument that perhaps these two books written by Luke, Luke and Acts were uh, prepared as trial documents for Paul during this process. But more than any intentionality from Luke, most people who read this, and I would agree with this, that there's an intentionality in the way that this finishes. 
that's intentionally left open. In fact, the final statement is one word in the Greek, without hindrance. It's a statement of triumph. It's a victor's cry. It was left open, I believe, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show to us that this is not the end. It's not the end. This is just the beginning. And in fact, many people recognize this. I know there's movements of churches called Acts 29. There's music groups called Acts 29. There's that picture and that recognition that this is not supposed to be some neat little package story that we can relegate to the archives of history. Well, isn't that nice? That happened 2,000 years ago, and we can reflect back as some sort of a past movement and moment. But rather, the intention here is both a proclamation but also an invitation. That as we see this story, as it ends in not some nice little fashion, that we recognize that the gospel story, the gospel is always more than just information. That it is an invitation for each and every one of us to experience that same power that raised Christ from the dead, rescued us from death to life, the same truth that still saves sinners, the same love that still sets us free, that same calling into the same mission to make His glorious name known. And if there's any, there's, there's no possible way that we could summarize a year's journey in the book of Acts into a couple of simple things. There's no way we can do it justice, but I'm still going to try and my prayer for us as we've journeyed through this book, this year, the highs and the lows, the heights, the depths, the struggles, the successes through various people from 120 in a, an upper room to the church at Antioch, apostles, to the miracles, the signs and wonders, to the struggles, the imprisonment, the challenges, there's these three dominating realities there's these three constants, there's these three certainties. Very simply, it's this. It's His unstoppable purpose. This is His mission. We could not stop it if we tried. He said the gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth as a witness. And then the end will come. And we're still caught up in that unstoppable purpose. This is the picture of His unfailing power. The power of God at work in the lives of His people. Filling them, stirring them, empowering them, comforting them, challenging them, convicting them. And this is the picture of His unshakable promise. His unshakable promise. That He is a God who says what He means, and He means what He says. Not only did He bring to fruition His word to Paul, that's been the focus of the last few chapters of this book. Not only was he faithful to fulfill that, he was faithful to fulfill his promise to those early disciples. As he is faithful to fulfill each and every promise that he has written in his word. He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God. We get Adam back up here. And the question I want to leave us with. With that reality, with that overarching summary, with hopefully some of these themes stirring within our hearts even today, is what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? What, what is our response? What is our response? 
to all that we've heard. And let me illustrate it this way. Tell a silly little story. And then I want to pray for us. Because <clears throat> I know that there's been, there's been some trials. There's been some things happening around us. Some big things, some little things. I had this moment on Monday, which is my day off. And I was pottering around the farm at home, as I like to do. And I've been spent, spending quite a bit of work trying to get the veggie patch in some sort of an order. We've got a, a large-sized veggie patch there that's adjoined to the goat paddock. So there's a couple of goat paddocks, uh, one of them that has the boys in the boys, a couple of breeding males we've got and some weathers. And the week before on the Monday, I'd been mowing the lawns and doing some, some different things around. And uh, what I realized last Monday is the prior week, I'd left the gate open, the gate between the goat paddock and the veggie patch. And I'm sure everybody knows, there's no question where that happens. You know, nature takes its course. So I came down on Monday with them having had a whole week's worth of access. And no word of a lie, my nice, beautiful strawberries, which looked better than ever because of the rain. I had these ripe fruits coming on there. I was imagining strawberry jams and all delicious strawberry delicacies. They were literally sticks. They'd eaten the strawberries, they'd eaten the leaves. I mean, anything they could eat, the lettuce was gone, all the little seedlings were gone. And... It is honestly the first time that I thought about changing the Christmas menu to a nice big pot of goat curry. <laughs> I was sharpening the knives. I was feeling frustrated. I was feeling annoyed. I was feeling hard done by thinking, story of the year, isn't it? All this work, all this promise, and then the goats have come in. The year that the goats have stolen. <laughs> I just felt like in that moment, in the midst of running through my frustrations and different things, the Lord just challenged me. He said, well, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What is your response? You're going to sharpen the knives? Is that the path you want to go down? You're going to fall into some sort of a, a pity party, a place of discouragement, as, as Adam was talking about? Throw in the towel, giving up, it's been tough, had enough. But I feel like there's an invitation, an opportunity for us this morning, rather than those two options of us to take this kind of approach, to be reassured of His promise, to be revived in His power, to be re-fired in His purpose. Because the truth is, through storms, through shipwrecks, through snake bites, through goats in the veggie patch, and everything in between, His sovereign plan is unfolding. He's at work. He's at work. So why don't you close your eyes. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. It's available in the times when we get it right and in the times that we fall flat on our face. We thank you for your power and your purpose and your promise in the midst of seasons where everything's going well and in the seasons where it feels like everything around us is falling apart. 
There's bad decisions, there's storms and shipwrecks on every side. Lord, I thank you that there's a reality that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you are working all things together for our good. And I just feel like for for each one of us this morning, there's an opportunity that where perhaps there is not only some baggage for us to lay down, Maybe it's just to be reminded afresh of his promise. Maybe it is to be revived again in his power. Maybe as we've talked about the last few weeks, it's, it's still that stirring and that refiring in his purpose. But Lord, I pray this morning for each one of us that there would be that sovereign touch of your grace just ministering to us where we need dusting us off, picking us back up, reassuring, resecuring our hearts, bringing back to life, whatever it is, bringing healing, bringing freedom. Thank you that you're at work even this morning. We invite you to come and do what you desire to do. In your wonderful name.